Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. So we are going to speak about variations on landings, and we are going to start with flapless landings. And before we get into deep, who would like to explain what flaps are? Enrique. Yeah, so flaps are devices that are installed in the leading edge, leading, no, I'm sorry, on the trailing edge of your wing that help the wing produce more lift. Excellent. Perfect. A lot of people aren't used to seeing small airplanes necessarily, but they are used to seeing large airplanes land. And they'll often look out the window and they'll see these things on the back of the wing that are slowly lowering down as the plane lands. Those are typically what you would expect to be flaps. That's the best quick way to say what that is. Let's talk about the functions of flaps and then let's talk about why we might not use them. So first of all, who would like to say why or how flaps help us? So the flaps, they can increase the, the surface area of your wing. Yes. And so what does that do? If that increases the surface area, what does that do? To some extent, it will um, help the wing generate more lift. But after a specific point, it will generate more drag than lift. Yes, so true, so true. And who else would like to add to what the flaps can do? Prasan, go ahead. Basically, I would like that, you know, flaps can reduce the stalling speed on the aircraft wing at a given weight. And flaps are also used to reduce the takeoff distance and the landing distance. There are different types of flaps used on different aircrafts. The setting of the flaps is uh, depending on uh, you want to use it during takeoff or you want to use them during landing. It totally depends on how and when you want to use the flaps. Well said. Flaps add lift and drag. They let you go slower without stalling. They can let you have a shorter runway for takeoff and landing. They They can give you a steeper approach. They can also change the pilot's sight or vision as they are landing because when a pilot puts flaps down, they often let the nose of the plane tip forward more. Those are some of the functions of flaps. So why might a pilot land without flaps? Destiny J. Say if the flaps were inoperative and you were forced to do a flapless landing, that could be a reason. Yeah, that is one of the most common reasons. If maybe there's a small mechanical function and the flaps don't work. Enrique, go ahead. No, just to develop a little bit on DJ's answer here, pretty much 
let's say you're flying a Cessna uh, and you have a, an electrical failure. So you're pretty much are going to lose the ability to, to deploy the flaps. Or if you're flying a Piper Cherokee and for somehow the cable and or the connecting rod um, pretty much breaks for whatever reason, you are going also to lose the ability to deploy those flaps for your landing. Yes. As Destiny J said, maybe there's a failure with the actual flaps, but as as you also point out, maybe it's another failure in the system, like an electrical failure. And this is just a quick tangent, but let's say that you know that you had an electrical failure. Let's say that your generator or alternator officially failed and you have just a little bit of power left in the plane. Should you put your flaps down and with the last little bit of power you have remaining? Destiny J. Honestly, it would depend. What if you weren't close to the runway? Would you want to put your flaps down? Because you may not make it if you create more drag. So it would depend upon like how far away from you from landing. Or you can even put it down halfway. At least you're not, at least you don't have full flaps in there. Yes, I would even go a step farther and say you can land just fine without flaps. Do not use up your last little bit of electrical power on the flaps. You may have more important things to use it on, like a radio call. And not only that, but let's say that you need you put your flaps down and then you need to go around and climb out again. Now you have all this drag. You did not need all that drag. So you don't want that if you have to go around. So flapless landings, the reasons you might do a flapless landing are for various types of mechanical failures, which could be with the flaps or with another part of the plane. And sometimes there might be a few intentional ones as well due to nature. This is a bit of a harder question, but it's anyone? can anyone think of any reasons? Yeah, Mo. Good morning, everyone. The other reason could be a, a high uh, headwind. Uh, so you don't want to get uh, so slow on the final. So you can easily do a landing without flaps. Yes, I'm so happy you said that. That would be a really strategic reason of using either no flaps or maybe fewer flaps. Because there's a strong headwind, the headwind will create that same steep angle that you would normally expect from flaps. And it would actually be harder to land with full flaps than with perhaps partial flaps. Last week, we talked about landing in a crosswind, how pilots will often use maybe a slightly lower flap setting as well. The one other one that I can think of or a reason to land flapless might be if the plane has picked up icing. And we We'll be talking about that more or uh, in a future icing lesson, or for some of you, we already had one as well. If there's icing on the plane, you do not want to restrict the airflow over the tail of the plane by lowering your flaps. And there are some other reasons. So, okay, so that's why you might do a flapless landing. It might be your choice, or it might be because the plane just did not let you. So if the flaps let you come in steeper and go slower, what is going to be the effect or how are you going to have to do a different setup if you don't have flaps? What's different about your approach? You're going to have a longer landing roll on your approach. So um, you would definitely have to 
control your airspeed, like coming a lot slower, try to come in a lot slower by controlling your airspeed. Ah, well, yes and no. If the flaps allow you to go slower on final approach, then when you are flapless, what should you do to your speed? Decrease it. Oh, but you don't have as much of a safety margin between yourself and the stall. Oh, God, I give up. (laughs) You increase your speed. Yeah, so you increase your speed, but then you were correct that when you increase your speed, that will give you a longer runway. Okay, gotcha. On a small plane like a Cessna, we're probably talking about maybe an increase of five knots or something in that nature. Okay, who else would like to add to what about what is different with a flapless landing? Let's start with Johnny. Hi, Johnny. Well, good morning or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. So I, I would say um, one of the considerations you think about is your landing would not be as pretty or as soft as you would uh, like it to be because your increased airspeed and your longer rows, you're going to touch down a little bit uh, harder than normal. Uh, yeah, that's debatable. It If the plane is starting to run out of runway, the pilot might not milk it as much for trying to get all of that energy out at the last minute. They might not try to hold it off the runway as long as possible. But if the pilot has an infinitely long runway, they could do a really soft one. Eh, that's a little bit debatable. Okay, so just a few other things about the differences in a flapless landing. So we know you have to fly faster. We know you're going to use more runway because you flew faster. What is the, about? let's talk about the height of your approach. Are you going to start the approach extra low or extra high? Mo? Uh, you, you should usually, with the higher speed, you should, if you don't have any problem with your engine, you can go lower. Yes. Yeah. Well said. And I like the qualification you put there. So, On a flapless approach, you typically would start the approach at a lower altitude because the flaps give you a steeper approach. And if you don't have them, you have to do the reverse. But, Mo, great point. In a small single-engine airplane, which is what we're going to be talking about here unless we specify otherwise, in those planes, you always have to remember in the back of your mind that you should still be able to glide in if there's an engine failure. So it's going to be a trade-off on safety. You have to figure out if it's worth coming in low or if it can you can do it safely. Great point. Okay, so you need a higher speed, a lower approach, and you're going to use more runway. I think that covers most of it. There's one more thing I want to say about the functions of flaps. So the reasons flaps behave the way they do is that they add both lift and drag. Most planes, at least according to the FAA's Airplane Flying Handbook, most planes will give you more lift than drag up to the first 15 degrees or so of flaps. And beyond that, they give you more drag than lift. So that's just a nice little piece of trivia about flaps that helps you understand them better. Okay, I think that takes care of flapless landings. Can anyone else think of anything that we missed? And Mo? Uh, You want to get to the sleep to the landing later, or do you want to talk about it now? Wonderful question. We did cover forward slips in great depth last week, but it is worth pointing out that if you don't have flaps to help lose altitude, 
that forward slip is a wonderful technique that can help you out, especially in a smaller airplane. I just have a quick question about that. You said it will help you out. Are you talking about how it'll like decrease, like it'll cause you to gain more drag so that you can get down faster? Oh, yes. Thank you for the clarification. So a forward slip is a maneuver that is designed to create more drag on the plane so that it will lose altitude more quickly. Great point. And everyone can listen to the previous set of episodes as we talk more about that. We did mention this a bit previously, but let's go into more detail on specifically gusty conditions. A crosswind might be a nice steady wind from the side, but how do you land differently if there are gusty conditions? You can add like half of the gas factor to your airspeed so you go faster approach. Yeah, yeah. So a gust is a change in the speed or the direction of the wind. And what happens is a pilot is going to be more concerned about stalling. And we've mentioned this before, but for those who are new, a stall is when there's not proper airflow over the wings. So let's break this down a little bit. Let's say that the pilot is flying a Cessna 172 at 65 knots on final. And suddenly their wind, they, maybe they had a 20 knot wind and then the wind dropped by 10 knots. That plane, for a moment, the wings will act like the, like the plane was just flying 10 knots slower because a plane's really flying based on how much air is going over the wings. So that plane is going to, instead of acting like it's at 65 knots, now it's suddenly acting like it's at 55 knots. And that means it's getting closer to the stall. The reverse could also happen. Let's say the plane is flying along and then suddenly the wind gusts with an extra 10 knots. That plane will start behaving like instead of a 65 knot wind, like it's suddenly in a 75 knot wind. It'll start to climb suddenly. We'd call it getting better performance. And so there can be a lot happening. And then now let's say that the 10 knot headwind sheared and changed to a 10 knot tailwind. Now the plane will believe it's going 20 knots slower and getting very close to a stall. Back to what Mo said, that is a great formula. This is not necessarily applicable to all planes, but it's a pretty common formula. They say take half the gust factor and add that to your speed. So if the wind is at 14 knots gusting to 24, the difference is 10 knots. That's called the gust factor. You take the top gust, 24, and subtract out the steady wind, 14. So if your gust factor is 10 knots, you want to add half of that, or 5 knots, to your airspeed. And that is how we handle a gusty condition, just to give ourselves a little extra margin between ourselves and the stall. All right. And of course, if you add more speed, remember you need a longer runway. But that brings us into short field landings. And this is sort of the opposite. Let's say that you only have a short runway. The first thing you need to know is you need to know for sure if your plane will make it. You need to know what your plane requires and you need to know what the length of the runway is. 
Let's talk about a short field landing. What are some of the keys to making a proper short field landing? Gab. First thing that comes to mind, a lot of the short runways in the UK are grass strips, so you can uh, use a bit of aerodynamic braking, and uh, that also keeps the nose wheel off the grass. Oh, yeah, that is true. They are often combined with what we call soft fields, and we will cover soft fields very shortly. Okay, so let's say that, but we'll isolate out the short field. What is the key to a good short field landing? Mo? There is some keys that, uh, first of all, is the aiming point should be at the first of the runway. You should come slower and then touch down the runway soon. I mean, as soon as possible. Also, if needed, you, you should use your brakes. Yes. Those are some of the really important ones. So you can pick an aiming point ahead of your usual aiming point. When we spoke about basic landings, we said that there are two points that we like to talk about. One is called the aiming point, and one is called the touchdown point. So the aiming point is where the plane would essentially crash if the pilot didn't pull back on the controls at the last minute. That is a point that looks steady in the windshield of the plane as the plane is approaching. Now, when the plane, the pilot starts to flare or pull back on the controls, the plane moves down the runway before the wheels touch. So if you know where the wheels should touch, then you can work backwards and figure out where your aiming point would be. And Mo, I also like your point about using potentially heavy braking at the end. If it is a short runway, that is one of the few times where a pilot might be more aggressive on the brakes. Usually that's a bad idea because it just wears out the tires and the brakes and it just costs money. But if it's truly a short landing area, that might be important. Okay, so we talk about the aiming point. We talked about using heavier brakes. Is there anything else that's different about a short field landing? Enrique. So let's say that the aircraft is perfectly functioning and you don't, you're, you don't have any systems fail. My only concern here would be with the actual shorter runway. I would approach using full flaps and hanging on, on the engine just to make sure that I can maintain uh, the lowest speed possible in order to land. Yes. So that would be a situation where the pilot would typically use all the flaps available to them. There are some planes with really impressive drag flaps. Some older planes have, I think, like 40 or 45 degrees of flaps. And maybe the pilot wouldn't even normally land with that. Maybe they would just normally land with 30. But if they are doing a true short field landing, most pilots use all the flaps they have. Okay, there's another one that we're missing. Johnny. I was going to just um, piggyback on what you were talking about with the older planes. And because uh, I, I fly, currently fly a stole aircraft, which is a short takeoff and landing aircraft. And I've flown another stole aircraft, which is specifically designed to do exactly what we're talking about now. I'll let you continue on. I don't know the other one that you're looking for. Actually, I, I like that. Let's, we'll take a really brief tangent as we talk about stall aircraft. Now, S, stall aircraft are S-T-O-L, 
not S-T-A-L-L. That sounds like a really similar word. So S-T-O-L stands for short take off and landing. Uh, If you want to say anything about that, Johnny, or add that, feel free, and then we'll go back to talking about the techniques. I fly aircraft uh, with a flap setting greater than 35. I have an aircraft with a dash 7, goes to a flap 45 degree, and the dash 6 that I currently fly has a flap 37 uh, setting to allow, you know, for you to get that very steep approach and have your, have the ability to stop on a very, very short field and take off in, in the same manner. Uh, the NATO definition of a stow aircraft is the ability of an aircraft to clear a 50-foot obstacle within 1,500 feet of takeoff or in landing to stop within 1,500 feet after passing a 50-foot obstacle. Wow, nice. And for those who want to do more research, and we won't go too far down that path, but look up vortex generators and stall fences, S-T-A-L-L fences, that go on the top of wings. And that is often what you would see on a plane with STOL capability. Very good point. Both aircraft have both of those devices. Yeah, there are some really interesting inventions out there. Okay, back to the technique for a short field landing. Mo, go ahead. I wanted to add that in a short field landing, we don't really care anymore about soft being really soft and smooth. So we don't need to flare a lot. As soon as we make a runway, we bring the power out. And then maybe sometimes it's a little harder than normal. True. I would say that that is the same as the flapless landing. It doesn't, it could be very soft still if the pilot uses good technique. Uh, but sometimes if the plane is really just trying to get that plane down, they maybe they won't stretch out the flare quite as much. But that doesn't mean you couldn't do a really soft short field landing. Okay, there's a really obvious one. So we keep talking about speed for landings. There's one other big key to a short field landing, the biggest key. In order to get that steeper angle, you need a slower speed. I don't think anyone said the slow speed yet. That was the one I was looking for. I think I said it in the first part. Oh, Mo, uh, I'm so yeah. sorry. <laughs> I might have gotten distracted. That's why no one was asked. No one was saying it. All right. Well said. Well said. Okay. So remember that. So that is the number one key. If you don't do anything else in a short field landing, probably. Just adjusting your speed is probably the biggest and most important thing. So remember, slow speed equals a short landing. A faster speed equals a longer landing. Okay, so that is a really good point. And like we said, again, slower speed is the key. Pick an aiming point ahead of your aiming point. Uh, You typically use full flaps and then know your performance capability on the plane and how much runway you really need. Okay, let's talk about obstacles. I know uh, we kind of alluded to those briefly. So why is coming in at that steeper angle because of the slower speed, why is that sometimes so critical? Gab? Uh, it depends on your approach, really, your approach path, because a lot of the shorter field runways that have been in the UK, uh, they usually have like a cornfield or a, or a forest, so you, you kind of need that angle. Let's say you're... There's a wall or, or, or like power lines. 
that's probably a good idea to choose a like 5.5 degree approach. So, yes. So the problem with a lot of short runways is that there are often obstacles. And like you said, it could be trees, it could be power lines. So the pilot needs that steeper angle. And of course, it depends on the circumstances. So when you are doing a short field landing, say on a test, I don't know how it is in other countries, but at least in the United States, the examiner can specify if there is an obstacle or not, and that might adjust where your aiming point and touchdown point are. That being said, if you are following all of the basic procedures for a short field, coming in at that slower speed with full flaps and all of that, you should be able to clear at least what we would call a standard obstacle. Uh, we There's a joke that all FAA-approved obstacles are fifty only 50 feet or lower, and that's kind of because they actually do surveys around all of the major airports to make sure that all of the trees are cut down appropriately. So at least if you use the standard procedures, you should be able to clear a lot of obstacles, but you can't always guarantee that you're going to one of those really well-groomed airports that's cared for by the government. Okay, is there anything else we are missing about short field landings? Let's start with Gab, and then I see some other microphone flashes. I just wanted to give an example of a really steep approach due to obstacles is a London city in the UK. That's that's a 5.5 degree or something like that uh, roundabout uh, approach path. I've done it in the sim a couple of times, and it's it's unusually steep. Uh, it's because you've li- you're literally in the middle of a city. Wow, you're probably flying right past all these tall buildings. That's really neat. Okay, I see several people. I believe Destiny J was next, and then I see more coming up. Um, I was just going to ask when once you touch down at your point, do you um put up the flaps immediately or? Can you like, until you settle down, can you put up the flat? Oh, Destiny J, I am so glad you brought that up. Okay, the reason, so this is a controversial issue, which that's okay. The old techniques used to be that as soon as a pilot landed and, and applied heavy braking, the pilot would also retract the flaps. The theory is that it would put more pressure on the wheels because when the flaps are down, they help the the wings to still maintain a bit of lift and essentially keep the plane lighter off the ground. If a pilot wants heavy braking, the theory is that they would retract the flaps and that would push down on the wheels and put more pressure on the wheels so the brakes would be more effective. But there was a set of accidents that started happening, accidents and incidents, because pilots were using this technique. Now, at least in the FAA, they no longer recommend it at all. They, I believe they wrote about it in something called an advisory circular, which is like a long letter. So what was the accidents? What were the accidents and incidents that started occurring? Uh, Mo. Yeah, the pilots uh, wrongly bring up the gears instead of the flaps. Yep, exactly. So after that started happening over and over, the government said, okay, okay, 
Well, it, it doesn't really make your landing ver- that much shorter to retract the flaps. It's not that big of a contribution, but retracting the, the landing gear is really dangerous. So they said, look, it's just not worth the risk. Don't t- most, most government sources say do not even touch your flap lever until you have taxied off the runway because they are so concerned that you will grab the gear, the landing gear lever, which might be similar, and retract your landing gear instead. Now, newer planes have things called squat, squat switches to help prevent you from retracting the landing gear by mistake, but you never know if those are going to work. Those are not guaranteed. Okay, who has comments about short field landings? Gab. Uh, I just wanted to continue that controversial subject and uh, I do it because in Sweden we, we get a lot of ice and they don't bother cleaning the runway so to improve braking action that's what I do and the instructors uh, don't mind it. Oh interesting it is a controversial issue I th- believe my personal belief is that if a pilot is going to do it they should understand at least the risks involved and make a proper decision based on risk management. So maybe the risks offset it. And it's also maybe it's in where you're flying, maybe it is the best choice. But in the United States, if you did it wrong and screwed up, there would not be a lot of mercy because the government has come out so strongly against it. Okay, the next microphone flash I saw was Omar, and then I saw another one right after that. Yeah, Captain, I, w- I would like to tell you something. And uh, a lot of DPEs, especially the older ones, in, uh, like in my experience, they want to see you retract the flaps in a tricycle gear. In an unretractable fixed gear, they want to see you retract the flaps so you can understand the aerodynamics behind it. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, it is controversial. That's all I will say. Let's go to Johnny. Well, I certainly don't want to get into any debates, you know, about stuff like that. But a lot of those things I feel may be a little bit debatable. And I, I want the que- I have a, more of a question and a comment about the DPEs and everyone. Are we teaching or talking about individuals' techniques? Because I think we're talking about their techniques, right? I want to just make sure we're, you know, emphasizing that these are techniques. These are techniques There may be proven techniques, but they are techniques that will help you or, you know, provide a guide to how to handle a short field landing. So it's not, I don't necessarily say it's the, it's the standard for it, but these are techniques. I mean, am, I, am I off base there, Captain Teresa? Well, so at the end of the day, that is correct. When pilots have a preferred way of doing something that isn't formalized in a regulation or a standard procedure for a company, we specify that it's a technique and not a procedure. That basically means it's up to pilot choice. So yeah, and but then, okay, so the argument against doing it in a plane with fixed gear is something called a negative transfer of learning because pilots will be very tempted to do it when they start moving to other planes. But again, it's debatable. Okay, I did, who else has a comment? Go ahead, Jonathan. <laughs> no, I was just going to say earlier that, you know, you know, during any landing, I always have like a mental 
you know, mindset that if I'm not going to make the runway, just do a go around, especially like in short field uh, landings. If my point, if I know I'm not going to make that point, then, you know, just do a go around so that I don't, you know, overshoot the runway. So that's just that. That is worth repeating. That is very good. So many, uh, so many good thoughts here. Philip. I just want to throw in, I don't know if you talked about it, um, short field landings on a long runway in terms of lasso, land and hold short operations. Oh, I love that. Okay, so that is a reason that a pilot might do a short field landing. Maybe it's a long runway, but maybe there's an intersecting runway and where another plane is landing. And so the pilot has to agree to do something called a lasso, L-A-H-S-O, land and hold short operation. So pilots are never required to agree to them, and student pilots are not even allowed to agree to those. But that is a great reason that someone might do a short field approach. Okay, I have another controversial subject. On the short field approach to landing, should the approach path be stabilized or not? So one technique if there are trees, is for a pilot to fly really low over the top of the trees. And as soon as the pilot is past the trees, they chop the power and then have a steep angle down to the runway. So is that a recommended procedure or not? And I know there's controversy. Let's start with Enrique. So my, my biggest problem and concern with doing a, a steeper approach it's pretty much your potential energy because right now you're you're increasing, especially around the weight axis, you're increasing your potential energy way a lot in a case where most people are not used to to deal with that kind of energy. So I believe that can can evolve into a really dangerous situation quite fast. So no, I, I wouldn't come in, in into that technique. Interesting. So you're saying that instead of coming in at a steady steep angle, it would be better to fly low over the trees and chop the power at the end? Chop the power and do a forward slip because I don't want to increase my my forward momentum in that situation. But I also would be extra careful about uh, keeping the aircraft safely managed to not, in order to not have a, a really hard landing. Ah, okay. Does anyone have counterpoints or support for that argument? Okay, here is my take on whether or not to have that stabilized approach. I will go with what the FAA says in the Airplane Flying Handbook. They want the stable, steady approach path without skimming the trees and chopping the power at the end. The FAA just wants a steep approach all the way in. There are a few reasons for that. The first reason is that if the engine fails, it's safer because the plane can glide into the runway. The other reason, and maybe even one of the more important reasons, is that having a stabilized approach is very, very important for accuracy purposes. If I, I know um, you were mentioning the potential energy, Enrique, if it's, it's higher up, it might come in with more energy. But the pilot, if they're doing all of the proper techniques with a, a lot of drag on the plane, flaps, that kind of thing, they should be able to manage their energy still in, with all the proper techniques. 
Does anyone want to add or debate? And Johnny? Great points, right? Because for, for me and some of the other military pilots, that's a technique that we are sometimes forced to use, an extreme steep approach, because some of the places that we operate, you take Afghanistan or any other mountainous place, um, Colorado maybe, and Philippines, you know, places like that where the airports are at the bottom of a valley and there's mountains surrounding, you don't have a choice but to do an extreme uh, approach. And that technique that Captain Ter- Teresa was talking about, maintaining that steep approach all the way down, is a proven and I, I think is one of the best techniques to use in that situation. Oh, excellent. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. And I we can't say it enough. Thank you for your serving as well. Thank you for your service. We are almost done talking about short field landings, but I want to just throw in a really fun math formula before we take a break. There are two different types of energy that we speak about in aviation, potential energy and kinetic energy. Potential energy is basically the energy that something has when it's a height above the surface. As it falls, the force of gravity pulling it down creates a certain amount of potential energy. Kinetic energy is the energy that something has when it's moving forward. And I want to talk about kinetic energy because it helps understand why the slower speed equals a shorter landing. So for those of you who have access to Instagram, you can get this on page nine of the free handout from my Instagram profile. It's just this cool formula. Another instructor that I used to instruct with named Don, uh, he used to talk about this a lot. Okay, so the formula for kinetic energy is one half mass times velocity squared. So you notice how it says velocity squared. That means that the effect of the speed is almost exponential. When basically when the speed doubles, the landing, the energy, which is really similar to the landing distance, quadruples. So let's just say for an experiment that you were flying a Cessna 152 and your normal approach speed for landing was 60 knots. If you slow down by 10%, that's going to be 54 knots, which is a standard short field approach speed. How much will that affect your total landing distance? Believe it or not, if you do the math at one-tenth of that, and then you square it for one-half mass times velocity squared, you get 81%, which is 19% less than what you had before. So what I'm really trying to say is if you use the proper short field approach speed in a Cessna 152, in theory, you will have 19% less kinetic energy which equates to about 19% less runway. It's not exact, but it's close. I just find that fascinating. And then let's say that you increase your speed by 10%, or which would be 66 knots. Now you are going to use 1.21 times the runway or 21% more runway than what you had before. So that might just be the amount of extra speed that you add in a gusty condition, 
just for adding a little extra speed for a gust, you are using 21% more runway. And then you can keep on going out farther. If you go to 72 knots, you're going to be using approximately 44 more percent uh, more runway length. If you go to 78 knots, it's going to be about 69% more runway length. And you can imagine how that would just keep increasing and increasing. 69% is a lot. That's just a fun math formula. But I think it helps drive home how important speed is. This is Captain Teresa with a post-episode debriefing. I wanted to add a few comments about the energy. In a glider, there are two kinds of energy, potential energy and kinetic energy. However, in a powered airplane, there is also a third kind of energy, and that is chemical energy. In other words, that's the energy that comes from fuel, and the pilot controls it with the power. So to relate this back to our conversation about the short field landings, the reason that the pilot can control the descent rate toward the ground is because the power or the chemical energy is overriding the force of gravity, the potential energy. That is the reason that it is still safe to come in at a steep angle. The other comment that I wanted to reinforce about the steep angle is that the steep angle is caused by the slower airspeed. It's counterintuitive that a pilot would actually have to pitch up for slower airspeed to get a steeper angle in toward the ground. A lot of pilots feel like pushing forward would be the answer for getting to the ground sooner. But remember that the plane is in something called the region of reverse command. And so it's essentially like the rule of opposites apply. I also wanted to make one quick comment about how to have a soft landing in a short field landing. Sometimes pilots don't realize that the flare will be different because the plane is coming in at a slower speed. It's common for some pilots to flare too early and then the plane surprises them by running out of speed earlier than usual and then it might stall too high off the ground and fall and have a hard landing. So my advice on the flare for the short field landing is to remember how little energy is still left in the airplane. I suggest starting the flare later than usual and usually that will help the pilot flare at the right height and then have that proper soft landing. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the Club Pilot Flight Training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.